Hey, good morning, family. How's everyone doing? Good, good. My name is uh, James Axel. I am a member here at Living Water, and it is a uh, honor and a privilege to be able to share God's word. Uh, Pastor Mike, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity. It is one that uh, I do not take lightly. And so I've been asked to talk about, as a devoted follower, uh, we must have a life of sacrifice and submission to the cross. So uh, for those of you that have a Bible or a smartphone, if you would turn to the book of Luke, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 18 through 23. That is Luke chapter 18, verse 18 through 23. When you have it, can you please stand in the honor of God's word? And this is the word of the Lord. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your goodness, Lord God, and uh, Lord, I thank you that your word does not return unto you void, but it goes out and accomplishes that which it was sent to do. And so I pray that in this moment that you would be glorified. Um, I thank you that you have not given us uh, a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And God, I need you, and I thank you for this opportunity, and, and, and magnify. I pray that your name would be magnified, for it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right. So there is a familiar story about a six-year-old girl named Jenny. And uh, Jenny had two loving parents. And so one day, Jenny is doing some shopping at the local thrift store with her mother. And she sees this beautiful pearl necklace. And her lies her eyes light up and she just has to have the necklace. Um, she grabs it like many kids do when they see something they want. She grabs the necklace, um, she grabs the pearl necklace and asks her mom if her mom will purchase it for her. Her mom looks at the back of the box and notices that the price is $10 and she says, baby, uh, this is a lot of money. If you really want this pearl necklace, you're going to have to uh, crack open your piggy bank and use your own money to buy this necklace. So Jenny was disappointed but she couldn't wait to get home to empty out her piggy bank to see how much money that she had. And, and the disappointment that she had within the store turned to devastation when she quickly realized that she was about $3 short. She had roughly $7. And when her mother saw um, that she really wanted this pearl necklace, she said, I'll tell you what, Jenny, I'll make a deal with you. Uh, if you keep your room clean for the next seven days and if you eat 
all of your vegetables. Your father and I will give you an allowance at the end of the week, and you'll be able to get this pearl necklace. And so Jenny was excited um, at that. And so for the next seven days, she did the very best she could to keep her room clean. She ate all of her vegetables. And seven days later, she was able to go back to that thrift store and purchase the pearl necklace. And it was her prized possession. She loved it. Um, the only time that she took it off was when she took a bath and right before she went to bed. And so Jenny also had a, a loving father, and her father would read her a bedtime story each night before she went to bed. And so one night um, when he finished the bedtime story, he asked his daughter an unusual question. He said, uh, Jenny, do you love me? And she said, yes, Daddy, I love you. He said, okay, baby, well then give me the pearl necklace. And her tiny hands clutched the necklace, and she said, no, Daddy, this is mine. Uh, I worked hard for this, but you can have Rocket. And Rocket was an old stuffed animal that she no longer uh, played with. And so the father smiled and kissed Jenny on the forehead, and he said, okay, baby, go to bed. And so about a week, a week and a half later, the father read Jenny another bedtime story. And when he finished this story, he asked her the same question. He said, Jenny, do you love me? And she said, yes, daddy, I love you. He said, well, then give me the pearl necklace. And Jenny said, no, you can't have this necklace, daddy. This is mine, but you can have my favorite shoes over there. And the father smiled, kissed her on the forehead and told her to go to bed. About a week or two goes by, and the father is walking up the steps to read her another bedtime story. But this time, right before he opens the door, he hears the sounds of, of sniffling. And, and to his surprise, when he opens the door, he finds Jenny sitting on the bed crying. And, and he, he's confused. He doesn't know what happened. So he says, baby, what's wrong? And she raises her tiny little fist in front of him. And as she opens up her fist, the pearl necklace is inside. And she says, here you go, Daddy, this is for you. And this melts the father's heart so much so that he begins to cry. And he takes the pearl necklace out of her hand. He places it in his pocket. And with his other hand, he reaches in his pocket and grabs a string of real pearl necklace, real pearls, and places that necklace around Jenny's neck. The reality is he had the pearls the whole time, and he was just waiting for his daughter to trust him enough to give him the fake pearls so that he could give her something authentic. And as we turn our attention to the text, in verse 18, we encounter someone who is known as the rich young ruler. And just like today, in the first century, it was very uncommon to possess all three traits. Uh, we're all young at some point. Some of us, uh, God has blessed us with wealth, and some of us have uh, influence and position. But this young man was remarkable in that he was not only young, but he was powerful and he was wealthy. And many people in that time, they, they would have viewed his material blessings as a sign of divine favor. Their, their minds may have gone to Deuteronomy chapter 28, and they may have looked at the first 14 verses and the promises that God makes with the nation of Israel. If they obey, they will be blessed. And so this man was extraordinary. And what's interesting is he also seemed different in in regards to many of the other influential people of that time, oftentimes people who had power and who had influence, 
they felt threatened by Jesus. They felt intimidated by Jesus. They, or, or they even went so far as to hate Jesus because he threatened the current power structure of things. But this young man was different. And the reason why I say that is because in Mark's account, in Mark uh, chapter 10, verse 17, the Bible says that he comes to Jesus, he runs to Jesus, and he kneels before him, and he asks a profound question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And ironically, Jesus seemingly answers the man's question in the previous three verses. Uh, for those of you that are familiar with this chapter, you'll see that in verses 15 through 17, there's a story of people who had little children and they had infants. And they brought them up to Jesus so that Jesus could touch the children and bless them. And for some reason, the disciples, perhaps they thought that Jesus was too busy. Perhaps they thought it was a, it was a waste of time. Or maybe they just weren't children people. And they began to rebuke the parents for bringing the children to Jesus. And Jesus had to check his disciples. He says, let the children come to me and don't hinder them because this is what the kingdom of God is like. And then he goes on to say something very profound at the end of verse 17. He says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so this begs the question, what does it mean to have childlike faith? Is he, caught, is, is he saying that we need to be childish and immature and silly? Well, of course not. When I, think of a, when I think of childlike faith or when I think of children, some of the traits that I think about are that children are obedient in a perfect world if they're having a good day. <laughs> You tell the child to come here and they come. You tell them to sit down and they sit. Children are also very aware of their limitations. And as a result, they are dependent upon their guardians. They're dependent upon their father and their mother. They trust them. They need them. And not only do they trust and love them, I mean, not only do they trust and need them, but they love them. They often imitate them. They want to be like them. There, there are things, um, certain characteristics that they imitate. I can remember as a child trying to walk in my father's shoes. I can remember putting on his clothes. There's this love, this dependency, this adoration. And these are some of the things that I believe Jesus um, is referring to when he says that we have to have childlike faith. Now, maybe the rich young ruler, maybe he was running late like I was this morning, and maybe he missed that part of the service. Maybe he didn't see what was going on, or maybe he saw Jesus uh, rebuking his disciples, and, and maybe this statement prompted him to, to grapple with this question, and he found someone who was able to answer it. So he approaches Jesus, and he says, good teacher in verse 18, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response is interesting in verse 19. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what's going on here? Why did Jesus respond to the man in this way? He's obviously being very respectful. He ran to him. He knelt before him. He called him good teacher. What's up with the response? Is Jesus saying here that he's not good? Of course not. I believe there, there's a couple of possibilities. There's a couple things that, that could be happening here. One possibility is that he's causing uh, the rich young ruler to focus on the word good. That word good is reserved for God. And while the rich young ruler in verse 18 asked the question, what must I do? Jesus is letting him know that only God is good. 
And you can't please him. You can't earn his favor based on your own merit and your own good deeds. And perhaps the second thing that Jesus is calling for the rich young ruler to do is to recognize who he's talking to and to respond accordingly. He's saying, if if only God is good and you're calling me a good teacher, then you need to recognize who it is you're conversing with. I can, re- I can remember as a child. Uh, I'm not sure I understand. Oh. <laughs> Siri doesn't understand. <laughs> so I can remember as, as a child growing up, one of my favorite things to tell people was that uh, you can't tell me what to do when I was a little kid. Now, I wasn't crazy. I I didn't say that to my mother or my father, but I can remember having conversations with older cousins or, or people who were trying to tell me something. And every time they told me something, especially when it was contrary to what I wanted to do in that moment, I was quick to let them know that you can't tell me what to do. I don't know you. There, there is no uh, relational equity. And, and so there needs to be some sort of relationship going on, or there needs to be some sort of recognized authority. You need to be a teacher. You need to be a police officer. You need to be a fireman. But if you're just a stranger telling me to do something, you can't tell me what to do. And this brings me to my first point for my point, people. We must acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ if we are to submit. You see, as the rich young ruler approaches Jesus, he addresses him as a good teacher, but Jesus is so much more than that. He's not merely a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not a miracle worker. He's not a deep uh, moral or philosophical example. He's not an example of, of how we can achieve our highest level of self or consciousness, but he is the God man. And if he is God, then his words are not just a suggestion. His words are not just a recommendation, but they are commandments from a sovereign king. Jesus asked an interesting question in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I tell you to do? And then he goes on in the next couple of verses, and he talks about there's two type of people. The first person hears the words of Jesus. The first person, they come to church. They listen to the podcast and the sermons. They read their Bible, but they don't build their life on what they have heard. And he says that person is, like the, is equivalent to the person who builds their house on the sand, And because they haven't listened to the words of Jesus, they build their house on the sand. And when the floods come and when the waves come, the waves beat upon the house and the house is devastated. But the other person, they hear the words of God and they obey. They apply the principles. They apply the commandments in their life. And that person, their life is built upon a foundation that is solid. It is rock solid. And when the storms come, when the floods come, it beats upon the house and the house is able to remain. Which one are we? Have we submitted to the sovereignty and the lordship of Jesus? Or do we just accept him as our savior and not our Lord? Sadly, some of us, although we may not articulate this, we want a a Shady Maples Christianity. And what what, what do I mean by Shady Maples Christianity? For, For some of you that don't know, there is a powerful ministry just outside of Lancaster. 
and, 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 and they minister six days a week. The address is 129 Toddy Drive in East Earl, Pennsylvania. And for those of you, people from all over the state come to this particular place. You see mega buses coming to this place because the, truly the glory of the Lord <laughs> is in this place. If you've ever had the roast beef, you can feel the anointing. <laughs> and so many of us, we treat Christianity like, like it's a buffet. We, we walk by and we want some of God's unconditional love. We'll take some of the mercy. We'll take some of that grace. We'll take some of the favor. But the holiness, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that. The parts of the Bible that rub up against what we want to do, we'll, we'll bypass that for something else. And how many know that Jesus will be Lord of all or he will be Lord of nothing? We have to fully submit. And so in verse 20, he continues the conversation with the rich young ruler and he says, listen, man, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the young man's response is interesting. He says, I've kept all of these from my youth. Uh, I believe that Greek word kept, I mean, that word kept in the Greek is, is phulasso, and it means to observe. He's telling Jesus, listen, I've, I've, he's already young, but he says, I've been doing this since I was a young boy. I've, I've kept these commandments. I haven't violated them. I've followed them wholeheartedly. And on the surface, this is a remarkable young man. He's articulate. He's well-dressed. He's influential. His theology is on point. He's affirming the Ten Commandments to Jesus, and he's saying, I've been observing these since I was a youth. But notice, his, notice Jesus' response in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And the first time I read this, it, it, it almost felt like Jesus was uh, killing an ant with a sledgehammer. I'm like, why is this response so harsh? What is going on here? You, you just met the man. You're ju you just had a conversation with him, and you're telling him to give up everything that he has to follow you? I love Mark's account of this story because he adds a, a tidbit that Luke leaves out. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, he says that after the young man says that he's kept these commandments and he's been following them since he was young, in Mark 10, 21, the Bible says that Jesus looked at the young man and he loved him. And that loving gaze saw through the ambition and it saw through the affluence. It saw through uh, his polite mannerisms. It saw through the accomplishments. It saw through everything. And Jesus being the great physician, he spotted the insidious cancer of covetousness and idolatry. And so when he detects what's really going on beneath the surface, he not only calls it out, but he offers to help the young man, giving him the opportunity of a lifetime. He says, listen, this is really what's going on. And what I want you to do is that I want you to give your wealth to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. This is the opportunity of a lifetime. He gets the chance to witness Jesus' miracles, to hear his deep, 
uh, teachings and to ask him questions behind the scenes. He gets the opportunity to witness firsthand the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua. He gets the opportunity to go and make disciples and to spread the gospel. Who knows? He may have even been an author of one of the books of the Bible. We don't know. All we know is Jesus said, you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. And he couldn't do it. Check out this quote by Ken Boa. It says, We are constantly in danger of letting the world instead of God define us, because that is so easy to do. It is only natural to shape our self-image by the attitudes and opinions of our parents, our peer groups, and our society. None of us are immune to the distorting effects of performance-based acceptance. And we can falsely conclude that we are worthless or that we must try to earn God's acceptance. Only when we define ourselves by the truth of the word rather than the thinking and experiences of the world can we discover our identity. So what's going on here? When Jesus says this, he's recognizing that, listen, your comfort, your identity, your self-worth, your faith is really wrapped up in the things that you have. Your socioeconomic status is what you're placing your faith in. Your wealth and your riches, this is what your confidence is ultimately in. And Jesus, he sees that and he asks the young man, I want you to give these things away because you don't have them, they have you. Jesus loved him and he wanted him to be free. But in verse 23, we see that he was unable to relinquish his treasures and to submit to God. It says, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Is there an area in your life that you have not submitted to the Lord? You see, we may not be very rich. This, that may not be the temptation for us. That may not be the struggle, but what is your pearl necklace? What is it that you're clinging to that the Father is asking you to relinquish? You see, oftentimes we're able to come here on a Sunday morning and we can hide those things, much like the rich young ruler on the surface, on the outside, it looked like it was all good. And we can conceal these things behind the small talk and the shallow relationships and the theological pontification. But when Jesus looks deeper, he asks, will you give me that idol in your heart? And this man, he couldn't do it. He goes away. The Bible says he was, he was very sad. And I think that word, uh, Andrew, I didn't get a chance to ask you, but I think that word in the Greek is, is perilupos. And so I think what's happening, that word, it, it talks about, it goes beyond very sad. It's, it's deeply grieved. This is the type of grief and the type of mourning that happens when, when someone dies. It's associated closely with death. This man is wrecked. He's devastated. Perhaps for maybe the first time he saw who he truly was. He saw the idols that was in his life. And he was unable to relinquish those things. And he goes away. And the irony about this is the man who was so concerned with preserving his legacy, he was so preoccupied with his wealth, we don't even know his name. We don't know what happened to him. We don't know if he was able to maintain his wealth. We don't know if he lost it. We don't know anything. 
His story remains as a cautionary tale, but he died nameless. And this is a reminder that only what you do for Christ will last. And so, as he walks away, Jesus and the disciples, they they continue to talk about this. And I love Jesus' interaction with the disciples because they kept it real. And so Jesus, he, he, he views the rich young ruler walking away and he says, I'm going to keep it real with y'all. It's hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this blows the disciples' minds. They're like, what do you mean? And, and they say, well, then who, it's almost like when he talked about divorce. And they said, well, if that's the case, it's just not good to get married at all. And so when this happens, they say, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? And Jesus says, well, with men, this is impossible, but with God, it's possible. And in the next chapter, we see that possibility fleshed out. As we, as we turn to Luke chapter 19, we're introduced to a brother by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, whose name means pure, uh, was ironically far from that. And so the Bible says in the first three verses that Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. There was no turbo tax back then. There was no H&R block. What happened was Rome, they had uh, tax districts that were set up throughout their empire, and there would be tax collectors whose jobs it was to collect the money. And so Zacchaeus, being a chief tax collector, we could view him as a, a supervisor. And unfortunately, he was dishonest, and he imposed what I call a Zac tax. And so what he would do was take a little bit extra, give the Roman government what was due to them, and he would keep some for himself. And so he was hated as a result of that. And it goes on, and it says that one day he's looking to see who Jesus was. There was a crowd. There's a, uh, the atmosphere is electric. And because of his height, he was unable to see Jesus. And so let's, let's pick up in verse 4 and read what happens next. It says, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So we hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, is also, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's a remarkable story of, of grace. And I want to go back to verse 4, where we see Zacchaeus unable to see Jesus in that moment, does something very unusual. It was undignified. It was uncommon for men to run um, like that within the first century. But not only does he run, he climbs up a tree, almost becoming childlike in his faith. And in his passion and in his excitement to see Jesus, he throws off restraint. He throws off uh, the, the, the usual norms and he runs and he climbs this tree. And what's interesting is when the Bible talks about Zacchaeus, we know that he's rich. We know that he's uh, influential, but it doesn't say anything about his age. It doesn't identify him as being young. And so I can't help but wonder if being a middle aged or being an older man, it allowed him to see the vanity of living 
for wealth, the vanity of having idols in your heart. And so perhaps he was able to recognize what the rich young ruler was unable to recognize in that moment. And so in climbing the tree, he, he looks up to see Jesus and he encounters the grace of God. You see, it was grace that allowed Zacchaeus to cross paths with Jesus. It was grace that kindled a desire in his heart for Zacchaeus to even want to see Jesus. Grace gave him the unconventional plan to climb up the tree. Grace caused Jesus to look up and call Zacchaeus by name. There's something when Jesus calls you by name. And it was grace that caused a sinless Messiah to break bread with a thief. And this brings me to my second point. We must recognize the grace of God in our lives if we're ever going to live sacrificially. And so Jesus, he recognizes the grace that, that Jesus extends. And Zacchaeus recognizes the grace that Jesus extends in this moment. He tells him to come down from the tree because today I have to eat with you. And the Bible says in verse 6, he hurried down and he received him joyfully. Verse 7 adds an interesting uh, tidbit. It says, and when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I remember uh, about 20 years ago when I moved to York, um, it was tax time and I was trying to find a, an accountant. And so there was a uh, accountant not too far from the barbershop that I was going to. And so I got to talking to the brother. He seemed like a cool guy. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get my taxes done here. So I went there, and he wasn't there. He didn't do my taxes, but he had an assistant. It was tax season, and, you know, sometimes they hire people for that season to do your taxes. And so there was a lady. She went ahead. I gave her my W-2s and my paperwork. We had a pleasant conversation. She knocked out my taxes, and I thoroughly enjoyed the experience until I found out how much I owed. And so it, 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 was, it was surprising to me because I hadn't, I didn't make a lot of money that year and I had owed several thousand dollars according to the accountant. And so it was one of those things where I knew I had to file, but I think I waited till like maybe April 13th or April 14th to file. And, and it seemed like my file must have went to the top of the IRS's <laughs> accounts because they started calling me immediately. I received all type of letters. They were jamming me up. And I'll never forget, one day I was at work, and I got a call to go into the office, and one of the secretaries told me, James, the, the IRS just called for you. And they left the message, and I was like, come, Lord, you can come get me now, Jesus. <laughs> it, was, it was the most embarrassing day that I've had at work. And what was interesting is I, I called, I made a payment plan with the IRS, and so I started sending them money every month consistently, and so the phone calls ceased. And so the next tax time, I decided to spend a little bit more and go to H&R Block. And so H&R Block, they had this cool option where they would do your taxes, and then they would also review last year's taxes for you. And so they did my taxes, they reviewed my taxes from the previous year, and the person who did it noticed that the tax preparer had made a mistake. I can't remember exactly what happened, but they put something on an incorrect line, and whereas I should have received a rebate, I thought I owed thousands of dollars. And so, by the grace of God, we were able to resolve that. Um, I, I didn't have to make payments anymore. 
They sent me a rebate check, so I got all my money back and then some. I got what I was supposed to get. And I was relieved, but I was also upset. All that stress, all that anxiety for no reason. Imagine how these people felt. That was a mistake from that young lady. What Zacchaeus did was intentional. He extorted these people year after year. He took money out of children's mouths so that he could enhance his lifestyle. He was already wealthy, but it was never enough. And so year after year, he constantly stole from people. It was bad enough that Israel wasn't free. They were a subject nation under the Roman Empire. And they looked at Yeshua with hopes that he would be able to free and liberate them. And this person that they thought would make their country great has gone to eat with Zacchaeus? This man is a self-seeking opportunist. He's a parasite feeding off the blood of his brothers, his Jewish brothers and sisters. Why would Jesus go fellowship with him? But I I like Zacchaeus because he's unbothered by the public sentiment. He's experienced the grace of God, and he's truly repented. And we can see that he's repented because in verse 8, he stands up and he says to the Lord, notice how he addresses him, Lord. He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. I remember the first time reading this, I said, well, okay, that's cool, but if you're rich, and you give up half of what you got, you're still comfortable. I mean, you're all right. You're not hurting. So he's rich. He gives up half of his goods to the poor. But notice what he elects to do with the other half. He says, and if I've cheated anyone, I will restore them fourfold. Now, according to the law in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 5, if he wronged someone, he should have uh, restored them and then added 20%. So for those who are bad in math like me, if he stole $1,000 from someone, he should have paid them back $1,200 according to the law. But he's saying, I'm going to give them four grand. You see, he had experienced God's grace, and so he gave sacrificially. He didn't care about the money anymore because he had something that was so much greater. We may not have the wealth and influence of these men, but every follower of Yeshua is called to submit and to give sacrificially. And many of you in this place, you you know that and you already do it. Um, I hear Pastor Mike so many times talk about the generosity, how people uh, give consistently and, and sacrificially. And the thing I love about God is the same Jesus who saw Zacchaeus give half of his goods to the poor is the same Jesus who saw the poor widow in Mark chapter 12 throw the last two coins that she had. And he took note of that as well. And many of you give with your time. You wake up early on a Saturday morning and hit the streets and share the gospel with the people of Harrisburg. You use your talents and abilities to to help people on the hill who are struggling with car repairs. Many of you, um, you get up a little early on Sundays and you serve as guardians. You work downstairs with the kids. You do missionary work and you go all across the world. You live sacrificially and you're not enchained by comfort and hedonism. If we're not careful here in America, the comforts that we have will sedate us. We will become numb to what God has placed us here to really do. And it's an honor and a privilege. And so in verse 9, when Jesus sees this repentance that takes place, 
Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So, in about six months from now, uh, the world's best athletes will meet in Paris, France for the 2024 Olympics. And now that I'm older, I don't get a chance to watch as many of the Olympic events as I once did. There are a couple that I do check for, but uh, one thing that I do enjoy is the opening ceremonies. I love watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. There's something about the pageantry that I enjoy. I, I like watching the different nations uh, donning their flags, wearing the nation's colors, and it is a tremendous it's a tremendous accomplishment just to qualify for the Olympics. And so the people in this village, they are celebrating their country and their nation, and they're happy to be in this environment, but they're not satisfied. They've qualified for the Olympics, and since they're there, now they want to get a medal. You see, these people have submitted themselves to strict diets their whole lives. They've submitted themselves to intense training from their coaches. They've sacrificed and have not been able to go out and to do other things that friends and family have done. Some of them are fortunate enough to receive sponsorship and they can develop all of their time to perfecting their craft, while others, um, they have to juggle families, they have to juggle work, and they train intensely, all for the hope of being able to stand on that podium. And when they stand on that podium, there will be a ribbon, a, place, a medal placed around their neck, and they will hear their national anthem. And they know that in that moment, there is a group of people who are celebrating them and who can't wait for them to return so that they can celebrate them, that they can praise them, and that they can cheer them for the accomplishments that they did. Well, I know about over 2,000 years ago, there was a man in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he talked to his disciples, he said, listen, I need you to pray for me because my soul is grieved even to the point of death. You see, in his humanity, he knew what lied before him and he didn't want to go through with it. His, his fight or flight instincts kicked in. But he said, you know what, God? Nevertheless, not my will, but let your will be done. He submitted to the plan that they had created in eternity past because he knew that an, only an infinite God could pay an eternal debt. He knew that we had to be rescued from sin. And so when they came and arrested Jesus unjustly, when they convicted him wrongly, when they beat him and when they tortured him, he allowed himself to go through it. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so this beaten and bloody Jesus was forced to carry his cross until he could no longer carry it. And they hung him high and they stretched him wide and they ridiculed him and they mocked him. Him, and he prayed for his enemies. And why did he allow them to do it? Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission for sin. And so when he knew that the payment had been accomplished, he, he lowered his head. He said, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost. But how many know Jesus didn't stay on the cross? Because after three days, he resurrected with all authority and all power. And how do I know he did it? Because in John chapter 10, verse 18, he told his disciples that no one can take my life, I lay it down. He says, I lay it down willingly and I have the power to take it back up again because I received this charge from the Father. And so he 
resurrected with all power, all authority, and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Why would he go through all this? My Bible tells me in Hebrews chapter 12 that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of God, which begs the question, what was the joy that was set before him? He knew that in the future there would be children from every tongue, every nation, every tribe, every socioeconomic status that would be saved by the precious blood of Jesus. And it was that joy that allowed him to endure the suffering on the cross. You see, he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done himself. He submitted his sacrifice, and it is our honor and our privilege to be included in what he's doing today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for your patience, Lord God. Lord, you blessed us with so many things. And sometimes we allow those good things to become idols in our life, Lord God. Sometimes we, we cling, we gravitate toward comfort. I know I do. I pray that you would help us to live lives that are intentionally sacrificial, Lord God. You've given us so many gifts, so many abilities, so many talents, Lord God. Help us to consider others better than ourselves, Lord God. Help us to live for your glory and your will. We thank you, Lord God. Thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Help us to love others. Remove the idols in our heart that you would be glorified. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.